there, I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome back, everyone, to the Aging Fearlessly program. It's really great to be here with you today, but it's taken me months to wrangle this guest into the studio. He's very elusive. I'm in Andorra. I'm in Perth. He's always off somewhere, having a most amazing time in his very fabulous role. So his name is Tony Stewart, and for many years he worked for companies for that worked for profit, so such as the NRMA. He was the CEO, but today he's doing more work on a social purpose as CEO of UNICEF Australia. Welcome, Tony. Thank you very much, Karen. It's lovely to be here. It is fantastic to have you in the studio. You know, how many times have I asked you? We've had breakfast chats about what you do, and it's just such a wonderful cause. So... Many of us don't know what UNICEF actually stands for, the letters of UNICEF. Can you help us with that? UNICEF is the United Nations International Emergency Children's Fund. And how important is this, is UNICEF? UNICEF is one of the great driving forces for the good of children. It's a separate UN agency with its own board, It's considered to be bipartisan, neutral, and probably the most effective organisation in the world at saving children's lives across the world. It's revered by children who see it very much as the Red Cross for children. I know that um, this this is not a role you've been in for very long. Tell us how you came to be working for UNICEF. Destiny. Fate, chance, one never quite knows what their next purpose in life is, but it was a great opportunity. I had finished up at the NRMA. During my time, I had served on a number of boards, and one in particular, the Starlight Children's Foundation. I found an incredibly great charity. Uh, The Australian government approached me to be the advisory board chair of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, It was a great opportunity to really understand how the whole not-for-profit and charity sector contributes to the betterment of Australia and the wonderful role. As I had been announced in that role, a search consultant or headhunter, whatever you call it, approached me one day and asked how could I chair the sector of charities if I'd never worked in one, which I thought was not a bad question and obviously it led to coffee and Coffee led to a conversations, and conversations ended up with myself um, becoming the CEO of UNICEF Australia. Isn't it funny when you look back? I like the fact that you said it's destiny. You know, because I think so many people, if you sat down at twenty and said, "Okay, when I'm sixty or I'm fifty, this is what I want to have achieved or done in my life," most of us don't know, you know, what role we're going to end up in, and. 
40, 50 years ago, people went into a role and they stayed there for their whole career. It's very different today, isn't it? It's incredibly different, but it's maybe the advantage of the years going by and becoming over 60 is we get the chance to reflect on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, some of your audience may have heard of theology and Aristotle trying to understand what is the bigger picture on in life. If we were to assume that the universe is moving and the planet moves, then everything about us also moves. And I think we are we're, we all have a purpose, and for a lot of us, we channel that purpose to leverage our learning, our education, to uh, support ourselves, to support our families, to provide for others around us. But after a while, we probably question what is the purpose of the organization we're working for. Mm -hmm. And some organizations have very good purposes, you know, which I think becomes even more rewarding. I've been fortunate to work for some organizations which had a great purpose, a great social purpose. And I've always wanted to finish my career less about retiring, but more about how can you make a contribution beyond the community? How can you make a contribution at an international level? It's interesting, you know, I want to come back to less about retiring because I think there's some really key points about retiring that we've both discussed before. But I think purpose and having a purpose in life is so important. And sometimes it takes a long time to discover that purpose. Did you think your it took you a while to discover your purpose? I don't know if we ever really discover our purpose. I think it's more we discover at a particular point of our life what our purpose is at that stage of our life. That purpose could be to get fit, mm-hmm. to go to the gym. Fair enough, yeah. could be to be a vegetarian. But I, I think that it certainly, I can't help think the human body likes to be driven by knowing what it wants to be achieving and some you know, e- simplistic goals, even if it's to lower a golf handicap or to play bridge a bit better. But I do think that starts to translate into the purpose I want to have around my family, the purpose I want to have around my employment, and the purpose I want to have, I guess, as a as a person on a broader scale. In the studio with me today is Tony Stewart, who is the CEO of UNICEF Australia. And we're learning a little bit about what UNICEF does and lots of other things about um, hum- not-for-profits. So today, Tony... Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you was about working for a company like NRMA that's profit-driven compared to a not-for-profit like UNICEF. How different is those roles as a, a CEO? Well, I think all CEOs or business owners of for-profit organisations have to look at strategies for profitable growth. And that's really what rewards investors and encourages uh, staff engagement to be able to increase the investment in the organisation. But I think when you're working for a charity, I look. I was not prepared, and I probably hadn't read the book, and I didn't realise just how different it is. Um, firstly, you have the most incredibly passionate and committed people who work for charities. Um, you know, incredibly focused on the mission, 
mm-hmm. and values of the organization. Um, the latter is a wonderful thing. I think it's incredulous to see so many people just driven by strong values. Sometimes those values can um, occasionally override commercial, um, and yet, even though one's running a charity, you can't afford to run it at a loss. You've still got to, we saw that recently with White Ribbon, mm-hmm. which went into um, liquidation. Mm. So you still need commercial principles, but to be able to balance commercial principles and to have such passion, such commitment, um, such strong sense of values, people will be very focused in charities on really understanding that the leadership team is on mission, which is trying to be a driving force for good, yeah. whether that's for cancer, whether that's for children. That's not always the way in the for-profit world where I guess those of us have been privileged to be leaders, we can get very focused on short-term earnings, focused on long-term earnings, but sometimes we can drift off why the customer is coming to us in the first place. Mm -hmm. So this really took you out of your comfort zone in learning the different role, even though it's a CEO. Was Was it out of your comfort zone? Yes, it is out of my comfort zone. It's a, it's a much tougher business model. Most organizations in the for-profit world start up with a reasonable amount of capital. Mm-hmm. If they're running short on capital, they can inject more capital in. Yeah. They can borrow. And so you wouldn't really be working for an organization which had insufficient capital. In the charity sector, we start with no capital. We work incredibly hard to raise voluntary donations and yes. provide services often for the government. And the more that we raise, the more we want to expend that on our charitable purpose. Yep. And the more we do that, the less money we have left at the end of the year, and we have enough to just balance our books, and we start and do the whole process again the following year. It's an incredibly difficult business model. It relies on incredible drive, um, particularly when households in Australia are doing it tougher. Mm-hmm. Know, people have been coming more focused with electricity prices go up. And yet what is so rewarding is when you'll find someone who leaves a bequest or makes a donation to a tsunami or the work in Yemen or in PNG because there's some incredibly great Australians who quietly want to make a difference outside of their own lives. And one of the things I think that um, UNICEF is involved in so many countries, it's not it is worldwide, yeah, the work they're doing. Yes, look, UNICEF is in a very rare position that a friend of mine explained it who runs operations in Fiji. He said we're the only organisation with an elastic band which can stretch both ways. We can stretch up and down and that in the morning we can be out in the local community, whether that's PNG or South Sudan. But in the afternoon we can be with the government And governments do listen to UNICEF. They see us as, we don't question what type of government it is, how good or how bad it is. We're there to protect and ensure that the children have a fair opportunity. The flip side of that is we are one of the few organisations who can be in the most extreme conflicts. I have friends right now up in Turkey, Syria, Yemen, really doing it tough with UNICEF. These are people who only a few years ago were in Iran and Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we can be at countries like in Kiribati, which are just unheard of, some of the smaller islands out in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. UNICEF tends to try to ensure that no one is left behind. See, 
so many of these places you've just mentioned I haven't heard of. It sort of makes you feel a little bit ignorant. But I know that um, the work in these places is so necessary. And um, you've talked about refugee camps. and um, you've, Can you enlighten us a little bit on those? What do you do in those sort of camps? Well, sure. There's often two types of camps. You know, ones where the refugees um, will come, but there are also countries... For example, like Lebanon and Turkey have been wonderful. They, the refugee camps don't have boundaries or borders. They are allowed an area where refugees can settle, but they can still, same like Uganda, still, um, unlike a detention centre in Australia, they can still go out into the community and work. Mm-hmm. There are other camps, um, like I was in South Sudan, which are protection of civilian camps. Those camps are heavily fortified. They're not to keep the refugees in. That are kept marauding militia out because there can be terrible incursions. So the United Nations will provide armed guards to stop unwanted people coming into those camps and harming, particularly women and children. And within those camps, you know what's most extraordinary? You'll find the same level of happiness with kids. Those smiles and some of those kids are actually happier than I can even see back home. They're so focused on their education. UNICEF will provide schools, literally curriculums mm-hmm. and I was in South Sudan and a 14 year old girl showed me her algebra and I swear it was the same level as my daughter who was 14 at the time at a school in Mossman I was just blown away so irrespective of the circumstances children's capacity to learn and their appetite to learn in some of those situations is just remarkable I've been following some other um great work that a few people in Australia are doing and I, I won't name any names but they often talk about just how happy some of the or most of the children are in places where they have nothing and the gratitude they have for everything that they have and I think we lose sight of that here. I think that's a misconception to think that the children have nothing. A lot of those children have hope and they have aspiration. Ah, okay. They want to be a doctor and a teacher more than anything else. They want to make a difference and they will learn and study and sit under kerosene lamps at night, learning, sharing. They will help teach their younger children the basics of preparation for schools. Um, In the middle of Ethiopia, you'll find older children after work when their mums and dads are working, teaching the younger children. We we will often say they've got nothing, but they may not have anything of the material provisions And that's in our what life. I was just going to say. You've just, okay, when I say nothing and I didn't clarify what mm. I meant, it's material, material things. Like our children here have so many material things, mm. but these children don't have the same material things. But, yeah, I'm glad you, you Yeah, so for all the proliferation of, you know, mobile phones, iPhones, iPads, Wi-Fi, you know, all the the great running gear, all the sporting equipment. There's no correlation with the happiness index. I agree. And uh, it's good to, yeah, it's a, a good point. So thanks for picking up on the materialism. Tony Stewart, the CEO of UNICEF Australia, is in the studio with me. And right now we're going to talk about the ageing workforce. Tony, we've had a few chats socially about the older population and retirement And you've been doing some talks to CEOs. What have you been discussing? Well, look, I'm a 
great believer that we need to feed our brain and not just our bodies. And new experiences, re-engaging. You know, we, the word retiring sounds like it's one of those words which says we're turning the dial down <laughs> or turning it off. Yep. We're asking for our brain cells to step down a gear. Well, I actually think it should be the opposite. We should embrace age and we should look at ways of revitalizing, re-energizing, and particularly re-engaging our brain. I'm absolutely convinced with no scientific basis that one of the reasons that women outlast men is they re-engage and feed their brain more. This I, you know, Well, have, thanks, Tony. No, I think, that, <laughs> I think that we can get caught into, you know, traditionally following a golf ball, reading the same paper, having the same conversations. And I think our brain cries out. And I think if my grandmothers were always cooking up a new recipe, doing different types of crocheting and different things, what they were doing is they were challenging their brain to something. And our brains really, really need that more than ever with the increasing dementia and Alzheimer's. So what I, what I try to talk about is, look, you may have had a career in corporate or a career in the business, but you can have a career in the community, mm. whether you're working at Bunnings on a Saturday morning, whether you're helping in a not-for-profit. A CC, a career in community. A career in the community. I really feel that there are different ways to have that next stage of one's career. And if that is helping a charity helping the community. Sometimes I think we all say we haven't got the right experience or I don't know nothing about that. I knew nothing about UNICEF, absolutely nothing. There were many more qualified, much better qualified people. But I did know that if I was to make a go at the job, I'd have to learn everything. And it's a wonderful thing to have a chance to be in a learning experience rather than perhaps sitting on a board imparting my knowledge from years gone by it's actually your brain still is a sponge it's got room to expand and if you let it shrink hmm. i absolutely so when i if i look at this microphone and radio gear and i thought gosh i wonder if i could take, understand how that all that equipment worked oh i can I may, teach you <laughs> i may not but i would be learning something new and i'm a great believer that if we just said we had one purpose in the next six months is to learn something new so to go and help in a charity volunteer and then understand what that charity does and how it helps is a wonderful learning experience. And that is again stepping out of your comfort zone and trusting in yourself that you can learn and you are capable and having those positive um, positive thoughts about what you can do and, and you know don't limit yourself. Don't hold back as the song says. I, I think one of the greatest dangers we have is we define ourselves by where we've worked and we think perhaps where we are now that doesn't mean anything. I helped a friend design a management program which has become incredibly successful in New Zealand and many politicians and CEOs have been on it. But in the first course, by lunchtime, we all knew each other's jobs and what we did. And I said to my colleague, please don't do this again. Why don't you have for the first two days, you can't say who you've worked for, who you're working for and what your title is. I just, love it. Just be the person and get back to being who we are without what our experience is, what our, just be Tony, let's just be Karen. And that's where I think people worry sometimes that they don't feel comfortable. And I just think we should just be ourselves, but we should learn new things. I'm guilty. Yesterday I introduced you as this is Tony, blah, 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 to this is John, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I did that in a cafe. I try, I try 
I, you know, I get, if anything, I get a bit embarrassed having had the chance to be a CEO on four occasions. Now, I don't want to be defined by being a CEO or a past CEO. I'd be just as happy to be defined as a former orange boy from the Seaforth Raiders football team or an assistant coach of something. Or a I swimmer think, at the B&B. A, a swimmer. <laughs> a swimmer, not a swinger. <laughs> we can use our work to define us too much rather than um, who we are. Isn't it wonderful when you travel and you meet somebody who's got nothing to do with your work and you find just the person sitting next to you on an aeroplane or somebody is... Everyone's interesting if you can just give them that chance. Oh, yeah. Look, I've met some of the most fantastic people on an aeroplane and I've stayed in touch with them. Hmm. Emails, just only, just an email every now and again and you go, wow, I really only knew that person for four hours and we still email. It's great. Yes, I met a couple last week who I've only met for one week, but I know that we'll stay together forever. Um, I think you can have great connectivity like that. Some people have a real knack of connecting with people it's I think it is a um for some people it's easier if you're a very shy person it's very difficult to connect I think Look, a little you are, introverted you are absolutely right and I've just been giving a master class to a group of young students on networking mm. and and showing gratitude and one of the exercises was could you think about all of the key teachers in your life who've made a difference or people have helped give you a job just drop them a note and say you're grateful. Tell them where you are in life now. Uh, because I think gratitude is something that we we don't do enough of. But I certainly think when it comes to connecting with others, um, some of us are shyer. I probably wasn't in that category. But then I'm conscious that if people are, if you can introduce somebody and um, and help them, I think everybody has a story to tell and everybody I've come across as you know, got a wonderful contribution to make in life. I agree. And it's just trusting yourself that, you know, open your mouth and tell someone about yourself. If you don't talk about yourself a little bit, people will never know. You sort of got to break that barrier and trust that people are going to uh, want to know more about you. Tony, some of the, one of the things that you and I have talked about is the benefits of working for a, a not-for-profit um, in in the situation with you for UNICEF, um, happiness and balance in your life. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, we talked about oxytocin. This is just a, a, a conversation we were having the other week and, you know, things that are, are, that you personally get from working from, for a not-for-profit. I, we often talk about work-life balance, but I've often wondered about another type of balance we you know sort of karma give and get the oxytocins what i think is important is that if you're driving home from having helped with a community or charitable organization you're thinking about the impact the organization's having in the community or on the planet or on the environment i think that that sort of that in itself is very rewarding for the brain you can't do the same thing watching TV for five hours or just reading a newspaper. So I think our brains and our bodies like that balance between exercise and diet and interest, but they also like to feel that we're contributing. And yes, praise is lovely, but more often than not, praise doesn't come along. But just knowing that your efforts are making a difference to a neighbor or a country or 
somebody who's doing it tough, I think, is is the the brain gets very stimulated on that. One of the things that um, we know in um, the ageing population is the importance of community and just being involved. And we're fortunate enough that we have a good community around us. And you just see some of the older folk in our community who really get up every day with a purpose and that community provides that purpose. What do you think about community in life? Look, if you have the opportunity to be in a street or an area which has a wonderful community, it's a huge asset. Money can't buy that. When people look for houses, and we fell into that trap, you can always look for the the house which has got all the right features, but you've got to look at the house and see what is that sense of community. I would advise anyone buying a house now, have a look and see what, watch that house at different times a day, see whether there is a community in that area. But if there isn't, for whatever reason, Find where there is a community, whether that in the case of swimming, it's the bold and beautiful, walking, tours, some wonderful trips these days from Manly to um, the split where you'll see community groups being out there. I think it's wonderful when there's a community of mixed ages. Mm. And we, we do need that sense of community in our lives. That support, I mean, it's really important in our lives to be able to reach out and to get support from other people, it's one of the, the human givens in our life, That one of the things that we actually need. Tony Stewart is my guest today and he is the CEO of UNICEF. Tony, mentoring, um, the older population, the workforce, I'm, and I'm, that's probably not the right way to say it, but the, the workforce like myself in their 60s, 50s, 60s, how can they um, contribute to say, a UNICEF in, or, or a charity in terms of helping out? Well, that's a great question, Karen. I think that most of us, I'm sure your viewers, can all think of a mentor or someone who's helped them mm-hmm. on their way through. I think it's wonderful to think about how you could reverse that. I think every charity would love to think that they could have more of their staff mentored. They might be staff have recently arrived in Australia. They may be young finance people, customer service people just on the telephones. As a general rule, most charities can't afford to pay for a mentor. Oh. And indeed, in the private sector, often mentors might be paid or it might be part of executive coaching. Yep. But I've had one or two people reach out and say, Tony, could we mentor some of your team? I think giving um, staff an opportunity to meet a couple of potential people who just want to help them grow and develop almost like part career coaches, help them with just where they are in life, Yeah, is a wonderful thing. I don't think you need formal training from that. I'm sure the experts would probably say you do, but sometimes we just need a support structure, and there's so many people out there who can give so much more back. I know so many people who say to me, oh, well, Tony, I don't think I'm qualified to be on a board. Well, fine, start. I think possibly that's wrong anyway, but, but please start off by just seeing whether you can mentor it's another, it's another way of volunteering. You know, you can be a volunteer in the traditional form of helping out in the office or fundraising. But another way is to say, could I have some staff I could mentor? I would love to think we could do a lot more of that in Australia. I think it could be just fantastic. I think people underestimate how much they're going to add a value. You know, that the, every little thing that we can help someone else with is adding value. Look, it, it's... It's such a key issue at the moment. We know that last year, 
more people visited GPs for mental health than physical health reasons. Yep. We know that Australia is growing its GDP at a reasonable rate, but it's growing suicide at five or six times faster. Yes. Particularly men. Now, I'm fortunate to be a dual citizen, and there's no doubt that the New Zealand Prime Minister has woken up to the fact that running a country needs both the economic and mental health of that country to be part of things. We've been trying to adopt her over here, you know. Anything in New Zealand that's good, we try to adopt. No, but I think, look, I think in fairness, people are starting to listen, but I think all of us need somebody who we can reach out to, have a conversation with us, have advice, which is not often families or friends or brothers or uncles, and mentors are a wonderful, wonderful way to do that. And I would love to see so much more of that in the community. I think it's... We can be quite lonely inside a very busy world. Yeah, we can. And so, Tony, reverse mentoring. So there's a lot of younger people coming through in workforces too Mm. that have totally different skills to what you and I grew up with. What do you think about reverse mentoring? I'd love to find a way it's stimulated. I've watched young people go into aged care homes and talk to older people. I've watched the impact that my son at 21 has talking to some of my neighbours here in the 70s. Yeah. I think there's something really rich. We've, we have got into stereotyping a wee bit, but if there was a way that it can work both ways. My, my son was over at a, doing an exchange in the States and Every student where he was placed had a mentor um, who was either a former graduate or a former parent or a parent of a former student. But what I found interesting is that each of those mentors believed that was reverse mentoring. It was their way of staying in touch with what was young. So it wasn't just one way. Ah. And I thought, gosh, if they can do that, if the Americans can do that, why couldn't we do that for every student at a high school or at a university have a mentor? When I was um, teaching, and I was a a primary school teacher in the Mossman region for a little while and out west in Sydney, um, we used to often team the kindy kids up with the year five or six and we'd do a little project like year five, go down and have a really good chat to a kindy person and your project for the next three months Mm. is to write a fairy tale about them. And the kids used to both get so involved and the the primary kids would have the little kids coming up to them, when's my story going to be ready? And the primary kids would go, oh, I'm writing this at the moment. It's a surprise. So there was a real bonding between those kids and uh, I just love doing projects like that in the classroom where the kids work together. Oh, look, I think that buddy system, and as I mentioned to you earlier on about Ethiopia, I think in a lot of communities where Mum and Dad may be caught up through the horrors of war or parts of Africa, the horrors of AIDS or the necessity necessity for both of them to be working. The buddy systems that older brothers and sisters and their friends can have is incredible. And if we can encourage that buddy system not just to be with the young, but the not so young, I think it's an incredible thing. I, I think the smaller countries in the world still hang on to that sense of community Mm-hmm. I see that particularly, you know, UNICEF does some incredible work in the Pacific. But whether I'm in Vanuatu or out the back blocks of Fiji, you see that incredibly strong sense of community and being there to help each other. Um, in Australia and nearby, um, what projects 
does UNICEF have? Well, UNICEF's key work is obviously where the need is greatest, and unfortunately the need is greatest where there is either famine, conflict, which we're seeing some just terrible conflict in children killed and caught up in conflict, um, and also where there is disease. You know, yep. I've been talking to... Um, the DRC in the Congo last week and my colleagues are working around the clock with measles, the outbreak anyone who believes measles is not a killer, please read what's happening in Samoa, it's yeah. dreadful because of the anti-vax um, sort of movement suggesting that somehow measles is harmless we've got over 50 dead um, but UNICEF has always felt that it's the best way it can help is to work through others in Australia we've got four or five projects we're working on here around mental health, around ensuring that children without drought have had a voice. Mm -hmm. What was noticeable around the drought is we're doing some great strategies around farmers and animals and financing and maybe some not-so-great strategies. But one thing which was invisible is how did children feel. They didn't feel part of the conversation. They haven't felt listened to. And UNICEF's been really working with children, trying to ensure they have a voice, trying to understand we understand their needs taking those needs to government with them, having youth summits, encouraging children to feel empowered that they are as much a stakeholder as anybody else. And in fact, those farms are for them. And I've had the privilege to listen to most remarkable Australians who at 12 and 15 may be running a farm, doing so much burden, and yet they don't want to burden their parents with how they feel because they feel the parents are already doing it tough. So we're in there in the drought, we do incredibly great work around the Pacific. Um, it's hard. Funds are always limited. But one of the great things about UNICEF is that when we partner a family or an organisation, we can share that journey with them. Mm. And one of, the, one of the greatest opportunities you have as the CEO is to share with a family just where that money is making a difference um, and to physically see the impact we're having with children. Your family, your children, has it given them a different perspective on life, do you think? Oh, I, I don't think UNICEF has per se, except that probably that wouldn't understand the impact I have had running other organisations, but they knew, they know Dad's doing good things for kids. But this is a father who's had my children helping out with the homeless, having Christmas lunches with the homeless, um, being down at the domain, I'm encouraging my son to go on immersions overseas. In fact, some of the most tragic immersions have been to some of the rural indigenous communities in Australia mm -hmm. where he's seen things he can't comprehend as to yeah. why we're not making a difference. I've always wanted to take my daughter volunteering in the Philippines and seeing some of the most incredible poverty but incredible smiles. So UNICEF's probably a continuation of that journey. I don't think you have to work in a charity to take your children or take yourself to an area where somebody's doing it tough. We were talking before about how you go through life and you retire. One of my um, regulars on the show talks about how some countries, people just do life. They don't actually go through these phases in life, like maybe in, say, Okinawa, the blue zones. The people all go through life and they're still working right to the end. Their jobs might change within the society, but they are just doing life. I that, like that as a theory. Oh, that's a wonderful expression. In fact, the more I think about that now, the more I see probably non-urban communities, particularly village communities or rural communities, 
you are right. They do life. The jobs they do as a 19-year-old and a 90-year-old may change, but they're making a contribution to their household and their family and their community. I love it that we do life. We, we do define life. I mean, Sydney's a shocker. You know, what school are your kids going to? You know, what university? What company do you work for? We, we try to define people by what they've attached to rather than who they are. And that was something you were saying before when you were talking about the course you're running. You said to someone, let's just be Tony or Karen or whoever for the day and not ask others. It's the same sort of thing, isn't it? So not to be defined by what you do. Yes, and yet we can be so bad, we will often, as you say, have that extra sentence, which we, we shouldn't. We should just introduce each other and say they're a great guy or a great lady and wonderful contributor and leave it at that. But but that's it is hard. You know, we are getting in an urban situation where I would imagine even to try and apply for a credit card working for a charity wouldn't tick enough boxes these days. You know, we, we're really starting to define people by wealth and assets and and yet I sort of wonder, well, how much do we need? And we spend so much of our lives accumulating wealth. Mm. Do we ever think about how we distribute it? Or are we growing in Australia in an entitlement culture where our children are entitled and expect all of our assets? It's a really interesting one, that one. You meet a lot of really interesting and influential people in your role. Meeting these people, how does it benefit UNICEF and, and the work you do? Certainly overseas, the head of UNICEF in each country is given the same status as an ambassador. So UNICEF is treated um, as an equal. In Australia, I've had the fortune, well, I guess there's not too many CEOs who've been CEOs in Australia now for the last 22 years nonstop. So you meet who was backbenchers or who was young juniors like you know, Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese. They were young lads with me 22 years ago, but I've had the opportunity to um, grow up with a lot of our politicians and business leaders and I've always treated to them as who they are as people. I think anyone who goes into public life generally believes that they can make a difference. I think sometimes the system wears them down mm-hmm. or they can lose their way. But there's some wonderful people and I think if you treat them well with respect and in my case I've always felt that you treat it notwithstanding what faction, what party, what politics, what race or creed or colour or age, just treat them as equals and uh, and at least you can have a conversation. So Tony, if anyone's listening to this interview today, which I hope they are in my podcast, how can people help UNICEF? Well look, I'm not here to ask um, people to help UNICEF. I think the first thing I would say is please see if you can help a charity in your area. Please think that you can think about um, how you can help with your own experience or time with an organisation nearby. If you do support a charity or two, and most people support three or four, and you're thinking about a children's charity which is really trusted and can make an impact, both home and away, by all means, think of us. But I would never ask somebody to switch what they're doing to come to us. Um, But if anyone ever wanted to talk about UNICEF or learn about it further, we'd always be welcome to help. But I just love it when I hear about how a young girl may be selling lemonade on Saturday afternoon to help children overseas with UNICEF. Just or, those little things. Or, or how somebody who's given us $50 a month 
has left a large piece of their bequest because they want to help children over and above their own children and grandchildren. And so there are some wonderful, wonderful people out there who are, who leave a lasting legacy. And uh, that's probably, you know, that's what makes me realise But it's got to come from the heart. It's got to come from people not being asked. So some of the things is that people can mentor, they can make donations, they can help out in the smallest ways. And... Uh, and trust these charities, trust places like UN or companies like UNICEF that are really making a difference in life. Yes, look, there's, if you sit down and discuss charities with your group of friends, your listeners, people can always go for the cynical side, you know, what's the admin expenses, things like that. Australia, for this, we're in a, we're in a wonderful country. And for all of our ills, we've got an incredible country. Now, not all the safety nets work, and we know that. But for Australia to get to the next level, to be a really great country, it needs three things. It needs, you know, a very strong private sector. We all know that. We need economic growth. But we also need a very strong government who knows what they're doing. But the third element is, is equally vital and is so underrated. We need a very effective charitable and not-for-profit sector, often known as civil society. The amount of all of our contributions, whether they be the volunteering at the school canteen, helping drive aged care, helping the homeless, the charitable sector in Australia does the most incredible good and sometimes gets the least attention from our politicians. And I just, I'm just so proud to see the great work of this sector. As the chair of the ACNC, the Australian Charities Commission, I just get overwhelmed with pride the amount of people, whether it's a small charity trying to make a difference to mental health or whether it's a large one trying to make a difference to the environment. Thank you, Australia. Thanks, Tony, for coming in today. I have absolutely loved having you in here. Yeah, just thanks for chatting to us about UNICEF. Cheers, everyone. Till next time. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in It's not all nine to five, it's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains high, swim across oceans wide. Live out our dreams, just you and me. Let your heart be alive. There's no time to wait. Gotta go get the most out of time Don't be afraid Like this treasure that you've got to find Baby, don't be shy Let's go and take that ride Taste the sweet and the spice Everything nice Let your heart 
just let your heart come alive, honey. Let your heart be alive. 